I would love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And as always, if you would find the sermon notes in your bulletin, I know that that would be a help to you as we move through the text here this morning. This morning, as we come to God's Word, we continue our study uh, through the book of Hebrews. We began that last fall. We'll continue it up through uh, September, or early uh, Labor Day weekend or thereabouts, when we will finish this up as God directs. But uh, a book that focuses on our endurance in Christ and the greatness, the greatness of Christ as our prophet, priest, and king, as the greatest of all reasons to endure in faith, to endure in life. And so this morning, we will take a look together at verses 1 through 14. You'll hear from Kevin Brubaker next week as he'll take us the rest of the way in chapter 9. But to help us to help us come to the text today, I want to remember with you a conversation from an Old Testament story, okay? So I'm just going to just remind you of it. I'm not going to turn there myself, but it, it, here's, here's, the after, here's, here's what I'm after, okay? But there's one element of it that I want to, I want to borrow. Uh, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, this is part of the Gideon narrative, okay? Uh, there's, there's a conversation that happens between uh, the angel of the Lord, who most of us who study these things would identify as the pre-incarnate Christ, and, and Gideon. Now, God's people at the moment have turned away from him yet again and are facing the consequences of that. And that included, at that time, foreign oppression, countries, uh, raiders coming and taking their stuff, and it was a, a, not a good time. Well, Gideon, at the time uh, of this conversation, he was threshing wheat in a, like a, a wine press. And the reason he was doing that was to kind of hide it, because usually you thresh wheat on a hillside or a hilltop and let the wind blow the chaff, but then the other guys and the, you know, the raiders would sit there and watch, and when you got done with your wheat, they'd come and take it. So you had to be a little more sneaky. So he's, he's, he's threshing grain in a wine press just to try to have dinner, you know, that kind of thing. Well, there's a moment the angel of the Lord shows up and says to him something like, Greetings, O mighty man of valor. And, of course, that sounds really sarcastic, uh, certainly not from the angel of the Lord. Mighty man of valor, yes, here you are hiding in a wine press because you're scared of the big bad wolf. Well, he was, and so he, he answers, though, and here's the part I'm after. His answer is, is, is something you've said. In a whole different circumstance. And people have been saying it for hundreds of years. He, he says to the angel of the Lord, if, if God is for us, why are all these things this way? You ever ask that? If, if God is for me, why this? Now, often we ask that question when it relates to relational problems, family issues, or illnesses, or financial things. And if God is for me... Shouldn't it look different than it does? You hear these bad guys are ready to come take our stuff. And if, what do you mean if God is with you, mighty man of valor? If God is with me, this isn't what I expected. Well, that introduces in theological conversation uh, what's often called a theodicy or a defense of God in the face of evil. But what I'm after today is not so much that, but the idea that God knows why, even when he doesn't tell us. And as it relates to today's text, here's the connection, okay? 
There are a whole number of things in the Old Testament, Old Covenant system, that when God explained them or told them, gave that information to begin with in the Old Testament, he didn't tell why. There's a lot of things in the Old Testament. He doesn't tell why. He just says, do it this way. And, and, and now then, hundreds of years later, you come to the New Testament and God is telling why in some of those areas. Today's text is a part of that. Here's why. Here's an explanation for some of the things in the Old Testament that God never explained. It wasn't that he didn't know. And I, I, I take the time to, to kind of push on that a little bit because we live in a day uh, where, where, if you're familiar with such things, um, everybody under 30 or so knows what a meme is. It's a creative way of poking fun at things. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, we used to call them cartoons, but they're not because they're snarky ways of poking fun at holy things often. Uh, and as it relates to the Bible, often people create memes poking fun at God because of something he said in the Old Testament or did, and, and they don't understand why. They see no reason for that. So they write a meme about it. They're kind of making fun of God, which, by the way, is rarely a good thing to do. Um, it kind of supposes that if God hasn't explained it to you and you can't see a reason for it, surely there must not be a reason, because after all, you are a pretty smart one, aren't you? So, uh, you know, I don't see a reason. There must not be one. Like, oh, my goodness sakes, talk about an exalted sense of your own ego. Um, there, I just said it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I see no reason for that. Oh, well, <laughs> must not be one then. Well, in our text today, God is going to explain some things in the Old Testament, all of it pointing toward Christ. And we'll, we'll see in the text, oh, for goodness sakes, that's what that was about the whole time. And it relates to us because it involves the way in which you're forgiven by God. That is completely and eternally. So it isn't just a matter of learning Old Testament structures. It's a matter of thinking through how you live before God as a person who knows that you are fully forgiven because of Jesus. Okay, very, very practical and wonderful stuff. So I want to pray for us, and we have some work to do, so we're going to get after it. But uh, let's come to God's word, though, after, after we pray. Father, thank you so much for your people and the privilege that is ours of opening the word of God together. This is a, a wonderful privilege, and I pray that you would help us. We need the work of the Spirit of God in us to break up those places in our own hearts that are hard, to enable our understanding and our concentration, and then ultimately to, to go from the text to you and to hear and obey and to love you more. So would you help that uh, process today and open our hearts to truth? And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So on your study notes, of course, you have a few words of review that will bring you up to speed of or where we've been the last couple of, of, of last month or so, a little paragraph about today's text. And then if you notice, if you look with me, there are two sections that I'm going to comment on. Uh, the first one, it covers the first 10 verses of our text, which we'll move through very quickly. And, um, well, I'll explain that in a minute. It'll go very, very quickly and easily, I think. And then the second section focuses on verses 11 through 14, where we see the contrast of those Old Testament structures with Jesus. We'll see Christ portrayed in all of those things. Also, on your sermon notes, if you notice at the end, it's on the bottom of page two, there's kind of a diagram here. So I'm going to be referring to that often. You'll need to go back and forth a bit between page one and page two, 
but I'll, I'll comment on that. I found it on Google Images, if you want to know where I came. I did not draw that. I am not that good at all, but I know how to click and mark and cut. So here you go. Uh, you too can do this. I want to read this, uh, the text, though, today. If we together would look at Hebrews 9, 1 to 14, and together hear the word of God. Uh, we read this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship. And I'll, I'll pause there to remind you, if you're here last week, Pastor Tyler preached uh, uh, from, from Hebrews chapter 8, uh, the issue of Old Covenant versus New Covenant, Jeremiah 31. So all of that, of course, just precedes this text. So that's on the mind of the writer as he comes to chapter 9. Even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, and the table, uh, sorry, in which were the lampstand, the table, the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, here's the big shift. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Look at that. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh... How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, God's word. Then, so the two sections, verses 1 through 10 and 11 through 14, are very clearly marked. Okay, so we want to deal with the first under the heading, the tabernacle of old pointed forward toward Christ. And I have five bullet points here. Uh, The first one I mentioned, the the countless and meticulous details required to secure atonement for sin emphasized the critical nature of what was taking place. Now, when I say countless and meticulous details, oh, no kidding. Uh, If you read the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of the Old Testament, you notice there's chapter upon chapter of minute detail about how to put together this tent, this structure called the tabernacle. Now, Again, a bit of history here, because I realize some of us have read this and very familiar, and others of us, this is newer. I, I, I do know that. 
And this is taking us back 1,400 years before the writing of this book that we're studying, all the way back to the part right after the Exodus. If the Exodus was like 1,400 and uh, something B.C., then this would have been right after that, all right? Because they were in the wilderness and so on. That's when God gave instructions on this first place of worship, preceding Solomon's temple and all of that. This is that first place of worship out in, in the wilderness. And God gave them very clear instructions on how it was to look. And he describes in minute detail every single part so that there's no mistake. He describes this outer courtyard. If you look with me at the details for a second on that diagram, an outer courtyard, which way is north and which way is south. And then each of these different elements. And as I mentioned to begin with, he doesn't always say what each means. He just says, do it this way. Okay? So it's not till 1,400 years later we're seeing that all of this was preparatory for Jesus. It was preparing so that when Christ came, you'd say, oh, I see. Now, here's what I want to do. Looking at that diagram, I want to move us from the right to the left and just talk about some of these things, okay? I realize it's like learning a foreign language if you're not familiar with it. That's okay. Uh, So I'm going to move from right to left and heading toward that place that you see marked called the most holy place. All this is right out of the text. I didn't make this up. It's just right out of the text you read, and of course, the Old Testament as well. The most holy place, then the holy place, kind of in the middle, and then over to the right. Now, this diagram does not have an entrance. That would be right there to the right, right to the right of the altar of burnt offering. If you had a little cut in the, in the tent, or sorry, in the courtyard, that's how you'd get in. Now, normal people didn't go in here, only priests doing their job. So people representing all the rest of us in the presence of God would walk in to work here. It's like their job, okay? So priests would walk in here, and their goal is to represent you before God. That's what this whole thing was all about. How can a normal person be represented before God and be forgiven for their sins? That's kind of a big deal, then and now. So the way God had it set up was the priest would go in, first stop, altar of burnt offering. So atonement, something had to be, had to be made. Blood sacrifice was given here. Uh, so an offering. And as you notice, of course, in verse uh, 8, uh, as we saw under our, in our previous study, the Levitical priests, the first thing they had to do was offer atonement for themselves because every single one of them was a sinner too. And of course, as we saw in our study, that was uh, Christ is the contrast to that because Christ is perfect. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. He, he could just pay for our sin because he never sinned. So the Levitical priest, though, would come in, stop at the altar of burnt offering, and there was a whole pageantry about that. The laver would come next. That's washing. So you'd wash up. And then into this place called the holy place, very Spartan, not a lot here. Um, there are no recliners here. And no lawn chairs. It wasn't a place you hung out. Now, we're working here, okay? There's a table with, with bread, loaves of bread. It's called the show bread. So that was baked fresh and brought in there. And you say, well, that's kind of interesting. Then there's a lampstand. It's a tent, for goodness sakes. It's dark. So there was, there was, a, there was a, a lampstand so you could see things. An altar of incense. Now, this drawing has it in the front part. In the text uh, that we just read, it sounds like it might have been the other part, but there's a discussion about that. And it's uh, extraneous to our conversation today. And then you see the part called the veil. 
that separates the two. This was a pretty beefy thing. Um, a very thick veil separating the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, from the other part. So in the first area, all of that, uh, that's what's described in the text. The Levitical priests would come and do their work out there on a routine basis. But into the Holy of Holies, only once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's when the high priest would walk in once a year and sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant, the top, the lid. Okay, if you're familiar with uh, the pictures, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, I don't where else have you seen pictures of this? But the, the cherubim with their wings and then the little seat there in the middle, that little seat would be called the mercy seat. And that's where the high priest would come in once a year and sprinkle blood on that to cover the sins of people for, for, for the next year. And they only went in there once a year into that place representing the very presence of God. It was a really big deal. You understand, a lot of preparation and a lot of fear. Like, what if you did the first part wrong? What if you didn't atone for your sins right? There's a lot of pageantry and a lot of order to this. So there really was a lot of fear. And for the people outside, if this guy's representing me, I'm sure hoping he does it right. Don't you think? I sure hope that, you know, whatever his name, Frank in there is doing it right. Because if not, I am in big trouble with God. So whoever the person is in there doing this, all the rest of us are cheering and saying, would you guys get it right, please? Um, Because it matters to me that you represent me before God right, and I can be forgiven. Come on, guys, pay attention here. So this this was a really big thing. Now, under the bullet points, again, I'm explaining the text. Uh, the mercy seat, this happened on the Day of Atonement and so on. The heavy veil, um, just a kind of a by the way, uh, there was a veil also in the temple that followed. After the tabernacle, we moved to Solomon's temple and so on, future iterations of the temple, Second Temple Judaism. There was a veil in the temple at the time that Jesus died on the cross. Similar in structure and similar in intent, separating people from the very presence of God. And it is that veil, Matthew's gospel says that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil's keeping people away from the very presence of God, that when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Not bottom to top, like a person would tear it, but top to bottom, as though by the very finger of God. So when Jesus died on the cross, that veil was torn. Uh, A lot more symbolism of this in the coming chapters, as we will see. But So there's, there's that veil. Now, I, I want to go to that fourth bullet point here and just think with you for a moment about this whole process. And I'm, I'm not going through the, the text line by line, but just really if you look back at it now, you, you can see where it's, we've kind of explained it in its detail, verses 1 through 10. But my fourth bullet point I mentioned here, isn't this all kind of gruesome? I mean, people look at the Old Testament system and talk about the blood of animals and how, I mean, come on. Um, a meme or something that says, boy, apparently God likes blood. You know, read your Bible. It's like, okay, you're missing the point. You clearly haven't studied this very well at all because it isn't that God likes the blood of animals. It's that God hates sin, and sin is a really big deal. Don't you get that? Sin is a really big deal. What were you going to do? Just write him a little note of apology? Uh, How exactly did you intend to be forgiven by God? No, God was teaching something through the Old Testament symbol, uh, symbols of, of animal sacrifice and blood. He was teaching something about the seriousness of sin and about the importance of entering his presence. 
He was teaching something. He wasn't being casual about the blood of animals. It wasn't it at all. So people who kind of play that a little bit and go, well, what's, I mean, isn't this gruesome? Yes, it is. Old Testament system was. It was intended to emphasize the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God and the idea that, what are you going to do? Just kind of waltz in there and say, look, sorry, dude. Really? Come on. Who do you think you're approaching? Who do you think your sin offended? What, some guy down the road? No, this is, this is God, for goodness sakes. I mentioned here a three times holy God. I want to explain that. By using that term, I'm, I'm drawing to mind Hebrews, or sorry, Isaiah 6. There's a story there about Isaiah uh, seeing this vision of God and angels, burning ones in his presence, who, who never cease calling out, holy, 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 reminiscent of the book of Revelation as well, where this, a similar scene is portrayed as angelic beings burning one, seraphim, in his presence, calling out, holy, holy, holy. That's what Pastor Tyler was poking at me for, just a little bit about really, really, really important. Because holy, 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 it's the only word that's repeated three times like that in the Old Testament or in the Bible, really. And it, 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 it does what you'd think. If something was holy, it was indeed holy. Holy, holy was a way of amplifying it, and holy, 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 for goodness sakes, took it to the, to the ultimate level. So when God is spoken of as holy, 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 it's to say he couldn't be more holy. Now, holy we often think of as sinless, which isn't a bad place to start, but it's more than that, okay? In the Bible, if you study Leviticus, and I know you're covering all this, of course, these days, Matt, um, we, 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 we think of holiness as sinless, yes, otherness, differentness, not like us. God is not like us. Um, when, when we think about how we get offended, we live in a very offended culture, have you noticed? Everybody is offended about everything, and that's supposed to stop the world. Uh, wow, oh, stop, so-and-so's offended, oh, no. Uh, well, we, we do this on a human level to a stupid degree, is that okay to say in a sermon, is stupid an okay word? Well, it is. It's, people get offended. And you go, oh, for goodness sake, who do you think you are? Well, you're offended. The world should stop. Well, sin is an offense to God. Have you, is that apparently a problem to anybody? Um, no, we're worried about this person, this person, this person, and maybe you. But, but, but sin is an offense against God. Your snotty attitude. Every time your foot crosses the line. Your sin is an offense against God. Has that bothered you at all? Have you rushed to try to appease him? Well, no, we tend to play it all down. Fortunately, you can't appease God. Jesus is the one who paid for our sin. But I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to talk about this element. Um, sin, sin is a serious offense against God. And I want you to look at that next little line in that bullet point. I do mean this. Our casual and informal age does not serve us well in understanding the nature of sin. We do live in a casual age, and I don't mean to, to pick on us for that. Everything is, is, is casual these days, not against it. Come as you are to everything. I get it, no problem. I'm not, it's not about that. I'm simply saying that casualness that we all love does not serve us well when it comes to approaching a holy God. So the Old Testament has all kinds of pageantry and laws and rules. And today's mindset says, you know what, forget it, just get over it. And, and, and I stop for a moment and say, hold on there, tiger. We're just going to waltz into whose presence? Are you? Are you? 
What earthly sovereign would you, uh, would you approach that casually? Uh, I remember some years ago, uh, uh, the Queen of England was highly offended because someone dared to reach over to shake her hand. And I remember the line, uh, this is, oh goodness, at least a decade old. She said, we do not press flesh. That was her dignified way of saying, don't touch the royalty. I'm sorry, we do not press flesh. I thought, whoa, all right. Well, uh, we won't press that flesh either then. Uh, if, if the Queen of England can be that offended over something as innocuous as a handshake, my goodness sakes, our sin is an offense against a holy God, dear friends. Now, there's a story in the Old Testament about two guys who, who kind of forgot that. In Leviticus 10, the story of Nadab and Abihu, and we don't know exactly what all they did. Maybe you guys who took the class do know, but they were, were, it's described in Leviticus 10 as they offered strange fire before the Lord. Sons of Aaron apparently walked in, maybe into the holy place, uh, had their, their censers for incense, and apparently did so in an unholy way. And what happened to them? God shook their, his head and said, boys, 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 kids these days just can't get it right. Is that what it was? Well, no, he struck them dead. Struck them dead. He didn't give them a warning. He didn't send them a ticket. He didn't put them in timeout. Like they went straight from that place to standing before him. Can you imagine the eyes wide open there? Oh, my goodness. We were pretty casual with him, and here he is. Now, interestingly, the next paragraph has a warning about alcohol abuse, leading some, at least, to surmise that that's there because maybe Nadab and Abihu had a little bit of uh, a little too much uh, wine or something that day, and as they were feeling all warm and happy, said, hey, let's go hang out at the temple. Sure, let's go kick it with the Lord. And, and somehow or another, we're way too casual in his presence. We're not really sure of some of those details, but the point is, they didn't treat as holy the one who surely is. And they waltzed into the presence of God, a physical space marked off as holy, and did not treat God as holy. In fact, in that setting, you find God saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. Isn't that interesting? By those, if you're going to come close, I will be treated as holy by you. Yes, I will. Now, that should be terrifying to us if we didn't have Jesus because I'm not real holy and I mess it up all the time. And all of this, of course, as I've said, points us toward Christ. Now, we saw in verse 9, animal sacrifices could never change the heart. They could not perfect the conscience. That's very similar to verse 14 where you see that the work of Jesus on the cross can purify our conscience. So animal sacrifices couldn't do that, couldn't change the heart, but the work of Jesus can do that. It can change the heart. New covenant does change the heart. So I want to shift to verses 11 through 14 very quickly. And a strong contrast driven uh, in verse 11. But, but, you see, the way that verse begins. But when Christ appeared, so those old elements in the past 
were intended to pave the way to Jesus. And then when Christ appeared as a high priest, which we've spoken about in the chapters past, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. So this tent, this tabernacle, was a picture of a different one. Not, not talking here about the body of Jesus. Uh, you'll find in chapter 10, the veil says his flesh, the, his flesh was like the veil. But this, this tent, I believe, is referring to the very presence of God in heaven. I think that's the, 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 the tent in mind in verse 11. He entered once for all, and that phrase we've spoken of several times recently, Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the, by the means of, of, of the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. If you look at the bullet points with me, I want to emphasize just a couple of things here, okay? Um, so I've mentioned the first. The second, Christ entered once for all because his was a perfect sacrifice. Now, I, I want to say this again. You've heard me say it in preaching a number of times. This is so important. The blood of animals could never take away sin. So in the Old Testament system, the Jewish system, when the blood of animals was shed, it wasn't because in the Old Testament animal blood took away sin. That isn't true. The animal blood in the Old Testament covered it. It was a sobering reminder of the seriousness of sin. It wasn't casual with animals. But, but Old Testament sacrifices covered our sin until the perfect sacrifice would come. So the only, the only way anybody's sin has ever been fully atoned for was Christ. So even before Christ came, nobody was saved by the blood of an animal. People were saved by faith in the one who was to come. Jesus' blood on the cross, once and for all, paid for sin, past, present, and future. Okay, so anybody ever... Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, who's in the presence of God is there because of the blood of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? Important to know. There's not an animal out there that could atone for your sin. Okay, so, so Old Testament sacrifices covered sin until Christ could come and pay for it once and for all. Jesus could pay it all. Verse 12, my third bullet point, Christ secured an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. He's the one who paid for our sin, past, present, and future, in one act of redemption. I find here um, uh, uh, reminders of chapter 7 and verse 25 that we spent a bit of time on. Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Saved to the uttermost. And I mentioned to you that the terms involved involve both, uh, speak to us of both time and extent. So saved forever and saved completely. Two different emphases wrapped together. Uh, saved to the uttermost. I think it's similar here in eternal redemption. Now, I want to I press on this with you because you and I are the ones who need forgiveness. Okay? So, so I'd like you to think about this with me, please. I'm looking at bullet point number four. And I need you to think with me about the work of Jesus on the cross and what it accomplished. So I'm saying here, Christ's sacrifice was intended to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That dead works, anything you try to do to add to it. Okay? Now watch this. Uh, thus, we do not need to forgive ourselves. I want to talk about that. We do need to accept Christ's forgiveness, but we cannot add anything to what he's already done. I, I am so sympathetic, and I, I hear this often. Maybe you've said these things. I just, I have a hard time forgiving myself for what I did. I'm, I'm very gentle with that. If, it would never just take a baseball bat to that phrase. 
because I know what you mean by that. You're saying, I feel the weight of my sin. And I, 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 you know, I, as has been said, I can't believe I did that. I mean, good night, what was I thinking? And so the, the weight of past sin. And sometimes then, as we wrestle with this, we end up with this process where we say, look, I know God forgave me, but I can't forgive me. And I want to caution us about that kind of thinking. Um, okay, it's bad theology, for starters. It really is. It suggests that, like, you know, God forgives people because he's, you know, like God. So that's what he does. And then there's me. And somehow my standard is, 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 is higher than God's. I know he's a big judge, but I'm a bigger one. And I know he's easily satisfied. And then there's me, and I'm not nearly as easily satisfied as God. Do you mean to say all of that? Because I don't think you do. What, are you a bigger God? A bigger judge? Is your standard higher? Because I don't think so. In fact, I think your standard for yourself is a lot lower than God's. So before you place yourself above him and say, I'm, I'm harder on myself than Jesus, oh, you are not. Not even on your best day. You understand what I mean here? Now, what I think you mean when you say, I need to forgive myself, here's what I think you mean. I think you mean, I need to really believe that Jesus has forgiven me. That's what I think you mean. And that's what I think you need to believe. I don't think you need to forgive yourself. What are you, some kind of judge? Like, and here's my other caution, my other fear for you. If that's something you would say, I need to forgive myself. My fear for you is that what you're doing is trying to add something to the work of Jesus. Like, your own misery. I can't let myself up from this. So I need to make myself miserable to kind of pay for it. And in that way, we're minimizing the work of Jesus. You can't pay for your sin. Add five years of making yourself miserable. Congratulations. What did you do? Pay for it? Is that what you did? And, and may I say, and somewhat facetiously, I, I realize I don't mean to poke fun at any anything you would feel or uh, struggle with. I don't mean to do that, but I'm going to run the risk. Um, sometimes we say, I just can't believe I did that. And I'd like to know why. Because I can believe you did that. <laughs> so what, what exactly do you think about yourself? Uh, I, I just can't believe I ever... Everybody who knows you believes it. <laughs> I'm just saying that. Um, well, what are you so shocked at? You're a sinner, man. You are. So am I. What are you so, so what are you so surprised when you acted like one? So let it go, sister. Yeah, sinner. I know. Got it. Capital letters. Write it in bold. Shout it. Sinner. I'm, I'm not making fun. Sinner. In need of a savior. And guess what? You have one in the person of Jesus. You couldn't have a better one. You couldn't be more forgiven than through the work of Jesus on the cross. You can't add to it, take away from it, improve upon it. Adding your own misery, adding your own, oh, but I've got to stew on it a while. Oh, stop it. And accept his forgiveness and walk in freedom. Forgiven by God. Forgiven by God. Yes! See, that's the response that should flow from your heart. Having a hard time forgiving yourself, uh, what you actually need to do is believe the gospel. That's what you need to do.
And um, I hope you do that. I hope you do that. Eternal redemption. You see this? Eternal redemption is the outcome of the work of Jesus on the cross. And 725, saved to the uttermost. You couldn't add a thing to his work. Now, two elements here under responding to God's word, and then we want to just kind of seal it and remember it in remembering Christ in communion. But under the section called responding to God's word, Hebrews 4.13, as we studied that weeks ago, reminds us that nothing is hidden from God's eyes. Everything is, is, is laid open and bare before the eyes of the one to whom we have, uh, to whom we give account, the one with whom we have to do. Everything is laid open and bare. Everything. There is nothing you've ever done that is not seen fully by God, including every motive of your heart. Right? Nothing is hidden from his sight. All of it covered by the blood of the Lamb. Believe it. No, really, believe it. Amazing grace. So repentance, faith, and worship are the appropriate responses to this. And I see this in that second bullet point there under that heading. We must remember and live in the gospel daily. That is your job as a Christian, is to rehearse the gospel every single day you're alive because every day you need Jesus. Every single day you need Jesus. I hope you know that. I hope you live with that awareness. Jerry Bridges, of course, now with the Lord, prolific writer, uh, would say, preach the gospel to yourself every day, which I think is good advice. Every single day, I need to remember the forgiveness that Jesus gave me when he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Every single day, your pastor is glad for a savior. And I hope you are too. Every single day, you need him. There's not a day that dawns and closes Away, you don't need Christ. And you say, Thank you, Lord, for being that kind of a savior for me. The power of grace through a clear conscience. I, I, I want to pray for us. I don't know how God is processing all of that through your heart, uh, different places of faith and walking with Christ in response to Him. I know in our in our church family, figuring out the gospel, understanding it, believing it. I know having heard it from a number in our church family, it's through the preaching of of the word of God and people hearing it and believing it that people are saved. And it's actually happening in this church family these days. Uh, I don't know if you know that, but hearing the gospel again and again and again, responding in faith and saying, yes, okay, I don't know how that all worked, but I believe that, I do. I believe that, I believe the gospel. I wanna pray for us and I'll say a word about communion, but join me. In praying, Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord, every single one hearing these words today is in need of a savior. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the fact that when we trust Christ as our savior, we're covered by the righteousness of Christ and our sins headed to the cross, paid for completely by Christ, never to be remembered against us again. And I thank you that we can walk in faith and freedom because of Jesus covering us with his righteousness. Thank you for this. Father, what, a, what, a, what an amazing thing that we can live in obedience because our sins are covered. And I pray, Father, for each one who's hearing these things today, wherever we're at and understanding it and believing it, that you would do your work in us to help us both to understand at continually deeper levels, great appreciation. And if there are some still just crossing that line of faith to say, I get it, I get it, I see it, and I believe it. 
Father, do that great work of redemption and regeneration in each, each one's heart as they respond in faith. Do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, communion takes everything we just said and kind of puts it in, in a symbolic form. And so the little cracker and the little cup of juice that's part of Christian communion tells the story of Jesus in his, his body broken for us. That's the little cracker. Uh, and the juice it points to the blood of Jesus shed for us when he died on the cross for our sins. So if you know Christ is your Savior, we invite you to share with us in taking communion. pattern we have seen repeatedly in the book of Hebrews where the writer is drawing the contrast between Old Testament pictures or actions, Old Covenant things, and pointing to Jesus. So the Old Testament priest and Christ is a greater priest and so on, back and forth, the prophet, priest and king. And so here in verses 13 and 14, he, he talks about these things in the Old Testament that were given to us by God as ways to pursue holiness. And he's just saying, we had to go through all of this. And then he says, but how much more? How much more with Jesus? Uh, a greater sacrifice. Animals, oh goodness, yes. And then you had to do it again. And do it again. And do it again. No, Christ, the perfect sacrifice. So this little piece of bread points us to the body of Christ, broken for us there on the cross. Christ was our substitute. He died in our place. So what he went through physically, we deserved. His body broken and wounded for us. So this little cracker, as we take that together, we remember the work of Christ on the cross. His body broken for us. Let's remember him together. And similarly, even as the cracker points us to the body of Christ broken for us. The little cup of juice points us toward the blood of Christ shed for us. It was his blood who was shed, not mine. Not mine. He died in my place. He died in yours. And we say, thank you, God. Let's remember him together. And I would love to pray together with you. If you would stand with me and join me as we close our time of worship together in prayer. Father, how we thank you today for the work of Jesus. We, who are so good at sinning, so desperately need Jesus. And I thank you for your work in us to give us a greater flavor for the things of God and less of a flavor for areas of sin. And thank you for how you change us from the inside out. You do. I'm so grateful for that. It's not just about giving bigger boundaries. It's about changing our heart. Father, we need that more and more and more until the day that we stand before you fully complete, no, no desires for sin at all, salvation completed. And Lord, until then, we just so desperately need your grace and your kindness. Thank you for a Savior. I pray for each person who's here in the room, Father, struggling with all kinds of different things, families and, and different things with kids and 
parents and, oh, there's so many things, illnesses and finances and relationship struggles. And, oh, Father, would you give us what we need this week as we follow you? Help us, help us, turn us to Christ. That's our prayer. Thank you for this time together today. May Christ continue to be honored from from it. In Jesus' name, amen.